0: This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection, Volume 2.11, in the Collected Works, Lecture 11. The Threefold Sun and the Risen Christ, given in London, April 24, 1922. In modern times, it is absolutely necessary for a number of people to know where we stand now in humankind's spiritual evolution and what path we must take to ensure the survival of our civilization. In purely anthroposophical terms, the spiritual powers we call the Aramonic forces, which embrace all of our materialistic thinking and actions, are attempting to bind us to the earth through sheer intellectualism, In our times, these Aramonic forces are very strong. They are trying to gain access to human souls in any way possible and to entrap them in a materialistic, purely intellectual understanding of the world. For this reason, it is essential for many people to understand how our evolution on earth must continue if humankind is to achieve its earthly goal. To understand this, we must look back in time over a segment of humankind's spiritual evolution. For our purposes today, we will not need to look back any further than three or four thousand years before the mystery of Golgotha. We will then trace humankind's development into modern times. Let me begin with the development of the Asian civilization I called ancient Persian culture in title Esoteric Science. During this cultural epoch, humanity's foremost teacher was Zarathustra, or Zoroaster. This is not the historical Zarathustra who lived at a later time, but a much earlier teacher of humanity. In those ancient times it was common for the disciples of a great teacher to retain his name for a long period of time. Thus the historical Zarathustra was the last in the generations of disciples of the great Zarathustra. The original Zarathustra was a great outstanding initiate. As a result of his particular initiation into the mysteries of existence, Zarathustra knew that an all-embracing cosmic spirit inhabited the space where the sun appears to our ordinary consciousness. What Zarathustra saw first when he looked in that direction was not the physical sun, but a great cosmic spirit who influenced him on a spiritual level. As a result, Zarathustra knew that the sun's physical rays are accompanied by rays of divine spiritual grace. In the human soul and spirit, this divine grace rouses to life the higher being to which ordinary humans aspire. In those days, initiates were known not by their exoteric names, but by names indicating what they knew, so this great initiate was known as Zarathustra or Zoroaster, the shining star, meaning the radiant divinity that sends rays of wisdom to earth. Zarathustra's level of initiation was higher than all subsequent initiations. What he saw in the cosmic spiritual sun encompassed all the forces that allow stones to harden, plants to sprout, animal species to multiply, and human beings to grow and thrive. Through the spiritual being he experienced in the sun, the original Zarathustra the shining star, knew everything that happened on earth. During the next cultural epoch, which I called Egypto-Chaldean culture entitled Esoteric Science, it was no longer possible for human beings to delve so deeply into the mysteries of the cosmos the initiates of that time no longer perceived the sun's spiritual rays. For them, Ra was the shining sun that moved around the earth, and Osiris his earthly representative. Certain mysteries were lost because initiates could no longer see the radiant cosmic god in full inner clarity, but only primal astral forces coming from the sun. Where Zarathustra had been able to see an actual being, the Egyptian and Chaldean initiates saw only forces of light and movement streaming down to the earth from the sun. They saw something less than a spiritual being, spiritual actions, but not an actual spiritual being, and Osiris was the name the initiates of ancient Egypt gave to the manifestations of the sun's forces within the human being. Moving on to ancient Greece, that is, to the 8th through 5th centuries B.C., we find that people no longer beheld the sun's inner mysteries, but saw only its effects in the ether surrounding the earth. Greek initiates, not ordinary people, but initiates, gave the name Zeus to the sun's effects in the ether that surrounds the earth and pervades human beings we have now considered three stages of human cultural development during the first stage initiates held a divine spiritual being in the sun excuse me beheld a divine spiritual being in the sun during the second they saw the sun's forces in action during the third they perceived only the etheric effects of the sun being at a later date in history these three aspects of the sun the aspects known as Zarathustra, osiris and Pythagoras and Anaxagoras, respectively, were also known to Julian the Apostate, who was as familiar with the teachings of initiation as anyone in his time. Through doctrines or traditions passed down in the mystery schools, rather than through direct perception, Julian learned about these aspects. He came to know something of the unutterable glory that Zarathustra had seen, and he also grasped something of the activity of fire, light, and the cosmic forces of chemistry and life that initiates had perceived in the ancient mysteries. He was so overwhelmed by this knowledge that Christianity seemed trivial in comparison, and he was unable to become a convert. Having experienced a certain degree of initiation into ancient mysteries, Julian attempted to disseminate their wisdom to the general public. He then met a violent death at the hands of someone who believed that exalted initiation teachings should not be communicated to humanity at large. The intent of Julian's murderer was to restrict ordinary people's knowledge of the sun to the exoteric statements of the day. Julian the apostate said that the sun had three aspects one belonging to the earthly ether, one belonging to heavenly light, and to the forces of chemistry heat and light that stood behind the earthly ether, and a third, purely spiritual aspect, that was a divine being. For making such statements, Julian was stabbed to death. In all fairness, it must be said that Julian lived at a moment in humankind's evolution when humanity at large really was not yet mature enough to receive such significant truths. It is also extremely important to note that exoteric Greek culture absorbed much of what was contained in the threefold teachings of Zarathustra, Osiris, and Pythagoras and Anaxagoras about the spiritual sun, the elemental sun, and the sun in the earth's ether. Greek Art and Philosophy were able to achieve such great heights only because much of this ancient wisdom flowed into the likes of Plato and Aristotle. By the time of Julian the Apostate, the ancient truths of initiation were no longer adequately protected against profanation. A great deal of initiation wisdom was conveyed to prominent Romans, specifically to the Roman emperors, but after the time of Augustus, if not earlier, they ceased to recognize its value. That is why we find reflections of ancient esoteric wisdom in Greek art, but not in Roman culture. Although it took on the outer brilliance of Greek culture, Roman civilization was completely prosaic and semi-barbarian. As a result, the spirituality that still lived in Greek civilization could not be passed on in its true form, and ancient mystery culture was not available to Christianity, which emerged in the context of Roman civilization. This statement must not be taken as a reproach or criticism, because this stage was necessary in the evolution of humankind. We must realize, however, that because Roman civilization did not value initiation, its ancient truths could not be passed on to the West and have not entered our ordinary modern consciousness. Roman culture separates us from the holy truths of antiquity, which the Romans did not understand. As a result, the emperor Justinian closed the philosophers' schools in Athens, and the last seven Athenian philosophers fled the Roman Empire and settled in Persia. I am telling you all this as necessary background to the actual subject of today's lecture. Before I can continue, we must briefly consider those ancient times when spiritual teachers looked up at the starry heavens and saw the threefold sun. This knowledge has survived only in symbols, such as the threefold papal mitre. Outer aspects have been preserved, but its content has been lost. Today, a new form of initiation, such as anthroposophy offers, is needed if we are to look back into those ancient times when people on earth learned the mysteries of human spiritual evolution directly from the sun. When disciples of the initiates of old, looked beyond the earth and into the cosmos, they perceived the spiritual being of the sun in the physical sun and its effects. In essence, this being was the one who would later be called the Christ. Outside of the earth in the cosmic sun, these initiates beheld the Christ. Thus, knowledge of the Christ is not the single most important aspect of the mystery of Golgotha, because the initiates of ancient times also knew about the Christ. They simply spoke of him as a being that lived not on earth or in earthly forces, but rather in the forces of the sun. It is totally wrong to believe that the initiates of old were talking about a being other than the Christ. Prior to the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ was always perceived as a being from outside the earth. This is a secret that has been entirely lost to humankind. In fact, such a view is now considered unchristian, although it was certainly the view of the early church fathers who knew that the heathen wise men of ancient times were Christians in a deeper sense even before the mystery of Golgotha occurred. What happened through the mystery of Golgotha? This sun being, formerly found only outside the earth, and perceptible only to those initiated into the heavenly mysteries, incarnated in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, lived on earth, was crucified and buried, and appeared to his initiated disciples in the spiritual body of the resurrected one. The essence of the mystery of Golgotha is that the exalted Son-Being actually descended to earth from cosmic heights, and that the Christ who passed through death and whose body was laid in the grave taught his uninitiated disciples after his death and resurrection. What he taught these disciples needs to be known by many people today, so that we can participate in humankind's progressive development. All the initiates of old were literally taught by beings from outside the earth. In the oldest mysteries, candidates for initiation were prepared for out-of-body perception that allowed them to recognize the super-earthly beings of various hierarchies, just as Zarathustra recognized the Christ as the exalted Son-Being. In these ancient times, people were taught the spiritual language of the divine teachers who descended from spiritual worlds to instruct initiates. For those he taught after his resurrection, the Christ was one such teacher, but he was able to teach them something that earlier divine teachers could not. Earlier divine teachers told human beings a great deal about the mysteries of birth, but nothing about the mysteries of death, because at that time not a single being in the divine world had experienced death. Death could be experienced only on earth and only by human beings. Although the gods saw human beings die, they themselves had only a superficial knowledge of death, Earlier spiritual teachers incarnated only temporarily to appear to the human beings they taught. But the Christ God learned about earthly death by living like a human soul in a physical earthly human body. He learned about death by experiencing it in a human body. But that was not all he learned. If he had experienced only the events between the baptism in the Jordan, and his crucifixion and death on the cross the christ would not have been able to tell his dis- initiated disciples what he told them after his resurrection both the earlier divine teachers who descended to earth and the initiates of old knew all of the mysteries of the cosmos with the exception of the mysteries of the earth's interior they knew that the earth's interior was ruled by spiritual beings of a different type from the gods who descended to earth in the time before the mystery of Golgotha. The Greeks, for example, were aware of these beings known as titans in Greek mythology. Through his burial, however, the Christ became the first of the upper gods to learn about the earth's interior. It is important to know that the Christ explored this unknown territory on behalf of the upper gods. After his resurrection, he taught his initiated disciples that gods also learn and evolve. This is what Paul learned through his natural initiation outside Damascus. In this earth-shattering experience, he understood that a force previously found only in the sun and united with the earth's forces. Why had Paul, in his life as Saul, persecuted the Christ's followers? As Saul, he had learned through ancient Hebrew initiation that the Christ lives out in the cosmos, not on earth. He was convinced that those who insisted that the Christ had lived on earth were wrong. When illumination struck him outside Damascus, he understood for the first time that he was wrong because his belief was outdated. In reality, the being who once lived only in the sun had descended to earth to inhabit its forces. Thus, to those who first proclaimed it, the mystery of Golgotha was not merely an earthly event. The initiates of the early Christian era taught that it was also a cosmic event. Early Christians, who achieved a profound level of initiation, knew that the Christ, the being who passed through the mystery of Golgotha, had descended from even more exalted heights to the sun, where he was perceived by Zarathustra. His power was then vested first in the sun's rays, where he was perceived by Egyptian initiates, and then in the earth's surroundings, where he was perceived by Greek initiates. Now, however, we are meant to perceive him as he was when he walked among human beings in an earthly body. We are meant to perceive him in his true form as the risen one who is in and of the earth. He has perceived the mystery of the earth and is gradually allowing it to flow into humankind's further development. With tremendous warmth and conviction, very isolated schools in the East secretly began to spread this esoteric Christian doctrine during the first few centuries A.D. Yes, esoteric Christianity does indeed exist. The early church fathers still knew of it, but they also saw the approaching storm of Roman civilization. History underestimates the monumental clash between early Christian impulses and the anti-spiritual culture of Rome, which spread a mantle of superficiality over the deepest mysteries of Christianity. Our ordinary modern consciousness has virtually no inkling of how the people of ancient times related to the forces of the cosmos. Three to five millennia Before the Christian era, people knew that when they ate certain substances, the forces of the cosmos worked through these substances into their bodies. For example, when Zarathustra taught his disciples, he said something like this, You eat of the fruits of the field which are shone upon by the sun. The sun, however, is inhabited by an exalted spiritual being. From out in the cosmos the power of this spiritual being streams into the fruits of the field on the sun's rays. You eat the fruits of the field, and their substance is released in you. May you also be filled with the spiritual forces of the sun, which rises in you whenever you eat of the fruits of the field, especially when you gather in ceremonial moments, take bread made from the fruits of the field, and meditate on the sun in it until it becomes radiant. Eat it, knowing that the spirit of the sun has descended from the wits of the cosmos to live in you. The ritual breaking and eating of bread during communion is a mere superficial token of this ancient knowledge. The perpetuators of the superficiality imposed on Christianity by Roman culture are also those who most vigorously contest the idea that cosmic wisdom is required in order to understand Christianity. They are also the least able to understand Paul's teachings. Because Paul directly perceived the sun's power streaming down from the clouds in the form of a superphysical being. This being is the Christ who descended to earth through the mystery of Golgotha. He is the cosmic divinity of the sun who has united with the forces of the earth. <clears throat> These mysteries were still known in the first three or four centuries of the Christian era, but then the exoteric world view grew so strong. That even traditional accounts no longer reveal the earlier, highly spiritual view of the mystery of Golgotha. Today, however, it is essential for humankind to remember this spiritual understanding of the central event in the development of civilization. Since those early Christian centuries, human beings have taken earthly wisdom to great heights. As a result, we have become free beings. In ancient times, Not even initiates were free, because their deepest impulses were guided by the gods. The freedom we experience now is due to the exceptional degree of earthly wisdom that we have achieved, and in the immediate future this freedom will increasingly allow the anti-godly and anti-Christian forces that I call Aramonic forces to take hold of human souls. For all our talk about nature and the dramatic achievements of our exacting natural sciences, we have not yet seen the need to Christianize science. Nonetheless, it must happen. We must thoroughly Christianize science, or we will lose everything we need to receive from the cosmos. In Zarathustra's time, people were still receptive to cosmic influences and understood them through the very food they consumed. Over time, however, human beings became increasingly estranged from cosmic life. In the Egypto-Chaldean culture, initiates were still aware of divine forces flowing into plants and stones, and this awareness led to the emergence of the science of healing. Even today our most effective medicine dates back to those ancient times, although we no longer know it. In this field, too, it is time to return to the source, to develop a medical science that truly explores the more profound forces in natural beings. This is a task for a modern science of initiation, and as such, Anthroposophy hopes to provide humankind with all that can be achieved in this regard today. In the year 1899, the dark age known to prophets of old as Kali Yuga came to an end. The living spiritual world that surrounds us can now reveal itself. We are once again becoming able to perceive it and to hear its revelations. The purpose of Anthroposophy is to draw attention to the newly accessible spiritual world. This is a matter of concern not only to human beings, but also to the entire cosmos. When the insights of initiation science are communicated in concrete detail, we must expect some of them to be met with ridicule. In my introduction today I said that it has become essential for people to learn about humankind's evolution in detail on the basis of initiation science. We must avoid swimming in generalities. We must enliven our insights by acting on them, which means that they need to be directly and vitally relevant to human life. Let me illustrate this with a story. Near the end of the Crusades, an extraordinarily gifted young monk living in an Italian monastery delved into the oral, not written, traditions that had been handed down from the early years of Christianity and survived in some monasteries. After joining one of the last Crusades, this monk fell ill in Palestine, or at least somewhere in the Near East. Lying in the hospital, he met an older monk who was initiated into the mysteries of Christianity. This encounter made the younger monk long to feel and understand Christianity's deeper mysteries, but he died with this longing unsatisfied. When he was reborn in our own era, remarkable forces emerged in his personality as a result of his previous life. As I said before, it is understandable that such statements are subject to ridicule, Nonetheless, we do need to be able to talk about the concrete and detailed conclusions of initiation science. Eventually people will realize that the results of spiritual research are as accurate and scientific as the facts of exoteric history. This personality was the one we know as Cardinal Newman. If you read about his life and what he said as a young man, you can see that this strong personality was filled with the Christianity that was different from the Christianity all around him. He wanted to escape from intellectual Christianity and dreamed of the different type of consciousness experienced by the first disciples of the risen Christ. If you then follow his later life, you will come upon an important statement that Cardinal Newman made on the occasion of his investiture. He said that there will be no salvation for religion without a new revelation. If you keep this statement in mind, you will understand that Newman's quest was based on a profound longing that resulted from previous earthly lives. He felt the welling up of spiritual forces that I mentioned before, and although he never transcended traditional Christian views, he had an inkling that a new initiation science, and thus also a new spiritual revelation, could be achieved through a specific type of self-development. I need not tell you more, here in his native country, because you can read up on Cardinal Newman for yourselves. He strove to break out of the fog of traditional Christianity into a new light, but he never actually succeeded. Deeper insight into his being reveals that this failure was not his fault. In this regard he was a victim of his time and of what I have called the Aramonic forces, which mounted an especially strong offensive against him, keeping his thinking imprisoned and preventing his spirituality from developing freely. Today, anyone who wants to develop free spirituality must liberate thinking from dependence on the brain. (coughs) Ahriman achieves his greatest successes by shortening the second half of human existence between death and rebirth. The two halves of this period are depicted in my mystery dramas. The second half, which encompasses everything that takes place after the point I call Cosmic Midnight, is the period that Araman attempts to shorten. In great haste and with great energy, Ahriman claws his way into the human brain, so to speak, in his attempts to restrict human beings' experience of the spiritual world and to confine our thinking to the earth. The result of Ahriman's activity is that people are incarnating one to two hundred years too soon. It takes a great deal of energy to overcome this Ahrimanic intervention. For all his strength, Cardinal Newman was unable to free his own thinking sufficiently. If he had succeeded, he would have discovered the path to a new revelation himself, instead of referring to it as something that must happen in the future. Personalities, such as Cardinal Newman, illustrate why we must draw attention to the spirituality that will lead human beings to a new life. As I have already pointed out, this spirituality will allow us to understand the mystery of Golgotha again and feel its full significance, so that it lives in the inmost depths of our souls. I mention Cardinal Newman as an example of a tragic personality whose life reveals what needs to be done. Because Aramanic forces intervened, Cardinal Newman failed to achieve a spiritual life and a spiritual and spiritual insight or perception. It is important for people here in England to grasp the esoteric necessity of making this spiritual life and perception comprehensible to humankind again. The survival of our civilization depends on it. It is no exaggeration to say that insight into such concrete karmic connections will motivate, motivate us to do our utmost to encourage human spiritual activity. This is the only option. But we must also be aware that the aramanic forces are very strong. Anthroposophy's testimony has very powerful opponents inspired by aramanic powers, and they are growing stronger and stronger. I am telling you this today so that you will not be surprised to learn that the budding anthroposophical movement increasingly has to battle terrible adversarial forces. Insight into the intentions behind anthroposophical endeavors must alert us to terrible aspersions and other types of attacks by enemies who do not want this movement to survive. But no matter how strong these enemies may be, our own positive energy must be equally strong. It is imperative that we disseminate the anthroposophical worldview honestly and clearly, even if many people will not be able to understand or accept what the anthroposophical movement attempts to cultivate. Despite all distortions and obfuscations of the anthroposophical movement's intentions, I hope that many people will summon the strength to apply their own positive energy to proving the validity and relevance of this spirituality to the world, which also entails recognizing this spirituality as a necessity for the continued evolution of humankind and human civilization. If we have come any closer to agreement on the inner character of anthroposophy and its importance for our times, then this gathering for which we waited so long will have borne the best possible fruit, in my estimation, In the spirit of this accomplishment, and in recalling this mutual understanding, let us remain together in soul as we go our separate ways. The End of Lecture 11